This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reebstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measure Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Dave Reepstein, a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined in studio, as always, with my co-host, Sunil Betty, who is a former doctoral student, but I have to say former because he is no longer a former doctoral student, <laughs> but he is now an official professor. Sunil, welcome. Glad to have you with me. Glad to be here again, Dave. So interestingly, today we are out in San Francisco broadcasting from the San Francisco campus. And of course, Sunil came out here with me and Absolutely. we are enjoying being out here. Um, and, and that's for sure. As our audience knows, we're live every Monday at 4 p.m. on Sirius XM channel 132, and we are replayed throughout the week. Um, and there's a lot that's been going on this past week, which, of course, was we had Easter this uh, mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, and we had Passover that started well. this uh, past weekend. We had the Mueller report that came out and then sure. the, the, all the controversy and rebuttals about that. Lots of other things that are going on for sure. Anything you got in, on mind? Well, we have mind? the Samsung Fold just uh, uh, Folded. announced. Folded. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, so we'll have to spend some time talking about that. Absolutely. And um, and I see that uh, that Target is offering one of their own brands that they're yeah. going to be introducing. So I think that's interesting. You know, we may have a chance to spend some time talking about that, but we have a special guest with us today who is in studio with us here in, in the San Francisco studio. And by the way, the studio happens to be part of the Wharton campus that's here out in San Francisco. But in the studio with us is Nadine Dietz, who is the editor of Ad Week and a host of uh, CMO Moves. Very interesting what it is that she's been doing. Delighted to have her with us on, on the program. Um, she's going to be with us in the first segment of the program uh, we'll be asking her a bunch of questions and getting uh, having a, a full dialogue with her. Second part of the program, we're going to open up the uh, lines to any questions that you might have um, about branding, about metrics, about um, anything about marketing in general that you might want to be asking us. So feel free to give us your reactions to the interview that we have with Nadine and also questions that you have about marketing. You can certainly give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And you could email us at measuredthoughtsxm at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at biz, that's B-I-Z radio 132. But without further ado, Nadine, I'd like to hear from you now. And uh, as I say, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be here, and uh, I'm excited and also uh, a little nervous as the tables have turned, and you're going to be interviewing me. So she says that because Nadine does a lot of interviewing herself, primarily of CMOs. We're going to have to get into that, but I like turning tables, so uh, that's (laughs) fine. I just cannot imagine that you're nervous. Uh, because you do this on a regular basis. So uh, I can't imagine any nerves over there. But Nadine, give us some of your background and um, and how you got to doing what it is that you're doing. And then we'll dive into what you're doing. But let's start with your background. Okay, sure. Um, so I spent the majority of my career up until about seven or eight years ago, uh, really focused on helping brands with consumer centricity uh, concepts and implementation. And I did that in a variety of roles, whether it was as a consultant or even within brands. Uh, so working with companies like Abbott and Del Monte Foods and supporting Safeway and a number of other consumer-related products, uh, companies. And what I discovered was right around seven or eight years ago when I had this pivotal shift in my career – you know, we had been talking about omni-channel personalization almost at nauseum then. If you can think about how it is now, we continue to talk about omni-channel personalization. And there was a lot of confusion as to what that meant then. And, and you, you saw my hand in the air, so yes. you, you knew I was going to ask you, so what's that mean? Yeah, yeah what so. does that mean? That's a, It's a good question. And um, it essentially is the ability to interact, respond, and engage with your consumers at any 
point along the customer journey at any touch point and within any medium. And that doesn't mean uh, once upon a time we define it as a seamless positive experience and it's subsequently been updated to a relevant positive experience because it doesn't mean you're having the same message going out to that same consumer in different mediums um, all the time because they might be using their mobile phone to access a different kind of content than if they're online or if they're in your store. So it's really understanding that consumer uh, soup to nuts and being able to understand, predict, and engage them in different ways uh, based on their their point of reference and what they want to engage with you on. So when I heard the term omnichannel, Mm-hmm. Um, typically what it is that I think about, first of all, when I think about channel, I think about channels of distribution. And indeed, we've got, you can buy online now, and you can buy through different types of, uh, of distributors. Uh, but also when we think about omnichannel, we now talk about channels of communication too. Mm. So what you're talking about is being able to connect with them through all those different sources, right? Because we connect with them in the store, we connect with them online, we connect with them with any of our communications, which might be advertising. And that's part of what it is you're referring to. Absolutely. hundred percent. And I remember back when this all started. So what I was going to say is that I, I decided to, to take on a project and actually author the CMO solution guide for omnichannel personalization. And I worked with 12 retailer CMOs to do that. Um, and that process just really changed uh, my perspective on what I wanted to be doing in my career, which was more of this best practice sharing. Um, but I talked to a lot of people in that process. And I, I remember vividly this example came from Rose Hamilton. She was at a pet food company, uh, pet services overall. And uh, she said, you know, Nadine, when sh- consumers are shopping for pet food online, they are looking for products. They're looking for a certain kind of engagement. But when they're at a dog park and they have their mobile phone and their dog just gets bit by another dog, they're not picking up their phone to order a product from me. They're picking up their phone because they need to reach me or they want to communicate or they need immediate information about healthcare or how to support in that situation. So that to me was the easiest way to kind of define it. I mean, it's truly two different modes of communication. Maybe not all the time has to be fundamentally different, but you have to be able to anticipate the needs and and have a different understanding when the consumer is using what medium to reach you, what they're looking for. Right. And that's not always easy. But okay, so take us through your journey. Okay. You want to know the consumer journey. So you were doing that, but then you made a transition in your career. Yes, uh, absolutely. So when I started writing this um, solution guide for CMOs, I discovered that the process and the collaboration that was involved in coming up with sort of the best practices, if you will, that's what really excited me. It was less about having spent so much time doing omnichannel personalization or consulting on it, it was about collaborating with lots of points of view um, and really understanding what the pain points were and and then drilling in even further to help solve it by sharing best practices from others who had had great success with it. And that was, that was the pivotal moment. Um, from there, I have authored several CMO solution guides. I, off, I authored the ANA CMO playbook. And um, it was about two years ago... Uh, after that was published, that um, the podcast came up. And it's just because I have this insatiable desire, I I would say, to share those best practices. And uh, Linda Boff uh, from CMOG said, Nadine, have you ever considered doing a podcast? Uh, It's a great medium. It's an authentic medium to share these stories. And I said, no, no, you know, my husband's been bugging me to do this for a couple of years, but uh, truly, no, I I hadn't, I'd never even heard a podcast, honestly. And um, she said, well, you should look into it. Well, lo and behold, she was right. She was one of my first guests on CMO Moves, and I came to discover she was a radio disc jockey in college. So that explains her, Her, you know, her love for that. That was her inclination, right, to go right there. Exactly. And this is almost like a sport, right? You know what it's like to do a podcast. It's fun. Um, You have to, you have to be in the game. You have to be prepared, uh, but not overly prepared, and you have to be in the moment. And uh, it is authentic, and that's what I truly love about what I'm doing. I get to interview the world's top CMOs. So so I'm aware of your podcasts, and I think they're great. I really do think they're they're wonderful. Um, are you, so I, I thought I saw that part of what you do is you're the editor of Adweek. Correct, yes. And, and so that's not part of your podcast, though. No, it's not. So that's totally different. 
Well, the podcast it technically now belongs to Adweek, um, but it it was really interesting because I started the podcast January of 2018, so uh, about a year and a quarter ago. And when I had originally started the podcast, I the intention was to share these insights so that the community at large could really benefit from you know these success stories. And what I discovered along the way is uh, a lot of what was being shared and talked about was extremely relevant and very relevant, in fact, to the CMO community. But to really help some of the younger marketers, they needed incremental insights coming from their peer group. So I went back to the drawing board and said, okay, how can I take all these great pieces of knowledge that are coming through the podcast and start to assemble them into tips for success. So we started doing that, um, created a bunch of tip sheets on, you know, how to create a purpose playbook, how to uh, really understand culture and how to impact and foster a culture of innovation. Uh, what is the art of storytelling? You know, what is the heart of retail? Having interviewed a lot of retailers like the CMO of Walmart, CMO of Target, um, other things that were a little more tactical, we hadn't gone as deep into like AI or machine learning. So I started bringing guests on that could share more about that, but I knew I needed to take it one step further. So after a lot of whiteboarding, um, decided to launch a platform called Marketer Moves. So CMO Moves was sort of the CMO track, if you will. And then we launched Innovators to focus on true innovation in the marketplace and the more of the the folks who are actually so driving that, that sort of a, a different series. Yes, um, okay. different so you've series. You've got an innovator series. You've got a CMO series. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your other series that? You uh, get? And then we launched Gen CEOs uh, because you have some amazing talent in the market right now, um, up until the age twenty three. And I've featured a number of them. They are in their fifth or sixth business endeavor, and they all feel that marketing is broken, and they're trying to solve for it. So we're trying to figure out what they think is broken. Um, and then I launched Women Trailblazers, which is a series dedicated for women marketers from women marketers. Wow. So you've got Wonderful. four. Is that four different? or Four five? plus just launched Challengers uh, for direct to consumer brands and how they're shaking things up. And I got a sixth one coming out uh, next week called Brand Genius. So I'm sure one of the things that you've heard from all these CMOs is about product proliferation. And oh, so, yeah. And so I'm hearing you, <laughs> you are an example of that. But let's back up for, for a second. I want to focus on the CMO yeah. uh, part of it for a second here. Um, you now have podcasts where you've interviewed several different CMOs from major organizations. About 70 of them. Uh, about 70. So I'd love to hear what are some of the major lessons if, you know, one of the, the the richness that you have is that you've had all these conversations, and I'm wondering what is it you've been able to sort of see across them that you can sort of distill and say, here are some of the major lessons that that I've got from uh, from them. Yeah, so it's a it's a great question, and and boy, if you take 70 interviews times 30 minutes, I mean that's a lifetime of knowledge times 100 probably, um, and uh, I think. You know, and part of the reason why I started proliferating um, is because everybody in different stages in their career is going to take something different away um, for that point in time. No, really true. Yeah. And so the thing, though, at the CMO level that I think is really telling, especially with the kind of CMOs that I'm talking to who are who are truly, you know, at the height of their career. I mean, they're leading the world's biggest brands is when you're there and you're in that spot, it isn't about the outside necessarily. It's about the inside. It's about leadership. It's about credibility. It's about driving the marketing organization forward. It's about culture. It's about fostering a culture for innovation, which is grounded in inclusivity, not just diversity, inclusivity. True inclusivity is a completely different way to lead and empathy. And those leaders are the ones that I have the pleasure and honor to talk to every day. Um, and, uh, they're role models. So I'm, I'm really glad you bring that up because so often I, I think we major, make a major mistake in, in how we view marketing of it's just going from the organization outward. And part of what you were just talking about is how important the marketer's role is inward and sort of getting people aligned, getting the energy, getting getting everybody on the same page. And that has to be pervasive, not just amongst the marketing group. 
-hmm. but actually a whole internal marketing effort is part of what's what's necessary. You know, um, Sunil and I have talked about this with respect to some of the nation branding and thinking about the country of Japan, which has done a great job externally, and yet internally the Japanese don't think as positively about themselves. And so I'm thinking about exactly what you're talking about as it applies to a country, which is what you know I've done some of my work on. Um, so that's very, very uh, interesting to hear. I'm, I'm going to try and, and extend that, what you were just saying, just a little bit. But before I do, I want to remind our audience that we're currently speaking with Nadine uh, Dietz, who is the editor of Adweek and the host of CMO Moves and a whole host of other podcasts that she just got done describing to us. And you're listening to Measured Thoughts on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And you can email us at measuredthoughtsxm at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at biz, that's B-I-Z Radio 132. So, Nadine, um, you you just told me one of the big lessons is the importance of, of the inward looking. Mm-hmm. I, th- I totally agree with you. I think that that's really, really good. Um, I'm wondering, as you say that, I sort of envision some of these big companies that you've been talking to. You also have been talking to some small companies. And I'm trying to think about that lesson, and I'm going to come back and ask you about some other lessons. But when if I'm dealing with a small organization, same thing apply? Absolutely. Even more so. Because you have fewer people doing sometimes more um, than they're even capable of doing in a smaller right. organization. And it is critical that everyone is working together as a team. Um, it's critical no matter what. I mean, if I look at Jim Stengel, who I had on the show, he was the former CMO of Procter & Gamble. I know, I know him well. I'm great guy. sure you do. Um, he is a great guy, and he's actually on our steering committee now. We just launched a new Brand Week steering committee, uh, which I'll tell you about in a bit. But um, Jim led Procter & Gamble. He had 7,000 people reporting to him in his marketing organization alone, and he managed an uh, advertising budget of around $8 billion. Now, that's big, right? You know, that's that's massive. But that's, even that's then, Jim was focused on his people. Jim was focused on the culture of Procter & Gamble. He was focused on the purpose and the vision. He worked very closely with Mark Pritchard at that time, who's now the chief brand officer. Uh, it's all about the internal organization. And when you look at a smaller company, um, you know, it's, it's so cute. I had uh, Deborah Bass on the show recently. She was the former president of marketing services for Johnson & Johnson. And I had her on the show because she took on a small startup that's a really cool new startup called Nuvo. And she said, my team of hundreds of marketers is pretty much me and, you know, three other people. And she's actually having the time of her life. But she it is so critical, though, that everyone feels like they can contribute in that situation and that they're being heard and that they're having a meaningful impact. Uh, so. Okay. So, so um, I, do, I do hear it as being relevant both for big organizations as well as for small companies as, as well. So, so for small companies, Nadine, how uh, uh, and I think a lot of our listeners, you know, probably run small companies or marketers at small companies. How can they uh, actively, you know, create this in, internal unity? Is it in the hiring process? Is it in the you know once they've been hired, then you kind of have these weekly meetings? How have you? Uh, uh, how have you explored? You know, how CMOs have actually created this internal this internal branding, this internal marketing? Yeah, so it's a great question. And again, it depends. How about that? Sure, using, sure. using the answer that always applies to any <laughs> question. It depends. Um, but uh, I think I think the key here is in, in a really, it, it does depend on the size of the company. I mean, if you're really early on, you're going to be in acquisition frenzy mode, mm-hmm. which is a very different skill set and a different call it a battle because it is a battle in the first year or two in the acquisition mode um, to develop your consumer base. And in that case, you're probably working really closely with the sales team. And uh, depending if you're B2B, B2C, B2E, B2I, whatever you call yourselves, um, you know, you're going to be closely linked with sales regardless of at the end of the day, those two things have to be working in lockstep together. So the most important thing I think a CMO can do in that environment is is be really clear about the role of marketing Mm -hmm. and make sure that the rest of the organization understands that uh, as CEO, CFO, CIO, the CSO, CRO, and to be really clear that you can't just 
only be focused on acquisition. A big part of marketing's role is to drive retention, which in the long term is worth five to one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, unless they are able to develop the credibility, which would include coming to the table with a very strong financial acumen, and that's a skill set that we always hear needs to be in, in increased in marketers. Um, and, you know, a lot of the CMOs I work with have fully developed financial acumen um, and being able to communicate in their terms, often acting as a decoder. Um, first, you have to have the rest of the organization understand what you do and the value that you can bring, not just in the short term, but in the long term, but then really create an environment where everybody is operating on the same level playing field. Mm -hmm. So actually, one of the ways I think to get people focused on uh, on understanding what our objective is and everybody on the same page is having some common measures. Mm -hmm. And so given you've talked to so many different CMOs, um, I'm, I'm really curious, uh, so what is it that, how is it most of them are measured? Uh, growth, unequivocally. Jim Stingle's book. Yeah, right. well. <laughs> well I, I, he's, got, he's got a book on growth, and so it's a, it's about growth. It is. So they're measured based on growth, not not based on profit? Well, one could argue you need enough profit to reinvest in the business to drive the growth. But, but the key is growth. The key is growth, yes. Okay. Not, not, not based on market share? Again, it all leads to growth. If you love all these things back up, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you unequivocally who was measured on. I'm sure everybody has a dashboard of things that they're measured That's upon. That's right. But I'm sort of looking what would be the, the one, the one or the, the five that are, are sort of common across. And, and when you say growth, I'm always worried that people use, say growth and they mean different things. So what, growth in what? Are we talking about growth in top line or growth in bottom line or growth in market cap or growth in, you know, margin, growth in what? Growth in, in, in all of the above, right? And, and, so I, I can't buy that. You can't buy that. <laughs> I, can't buy, I, I, can't, I can't buy that because you, you don't, you can't necessarily have it in all of them. I could drop my price and watch my units grow. Right. Okay. But, you know, it, it may mean that my profit does not grow. So they don't necessarily go hand in hand. No, of course not. So yeah. what is it that, that's key? Because I'd, I'd like to believe that it's growth and profit. Yes. But I do believe that it is often growth in revenue and that the marketer's uh, feet are not held to the fire on uh, on the profit side. And and I'm curious as to what it is you've you've heard in, in uh, from these different uh, senior marketers. Yes. So we don't actually on the show pick apart what their objectives are, but I agree with you. And I think it's growth for the long term, which would be profit based. And in the scenario we were talking about earlier, if you're in an acquisition frenzy, I think that is the number one problem is that some people are tied to sales growth, revenue growth, top line growth, and it doesn't deliver bottom line growth. And so we spent a lot of time talking about what are the variables that are actually going to deliver bottom line growth. Um, good example of that is social media. It can be cost heavy, but it can increase the level of retention of your consumers if done well. And therefore, it's a cost to be absorbed because it will drive the long term growth. Right. So so actually, you know, there's a couple of times now you've mentioned retention mm -hmm. and um, and it may be that people are being held accountable for retention. We've got to make sure that our customers are satisfied. Uh, and actually, by the way, the most common measure that people have is customer satisfaction. We've got to make sure that they're satisfied um, and therefore that we're keeping them. Because as you said, there tends to be, you you mentioned a five to one, mm -hmm. you know, that is retaining somebody is worth five times as much as bringing in a new customer, mm -hmm. um, which there, there's been some work that has sort of shown that and actually some others that has disputed that. But, but in general, retention is a really, really important thing and it shows that you're doing a good job. Um, and so I, I'd like to see, you know, that maybe we're taking that growth and we're breaking it down into some components mm -hmm. uh, where number of customers, um, how how we're retaining them. Actually, n number of customers, we might think in terms of acquisition mm -hmm. because I want to get more customers that are in right. there. A, a variety of things like that. Uh, I, do, I guess I do want to ask you some other questions about other takeaways that you might have had. Um, as you look across... Well, actually, since you're doing these different programs 
from the Gen Zs mm-hmm. to these, you know, Fortune 500. Are there major differences there that you see? Oh, unequivocally. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. One of the Gen CEOs I just had on uh, – Technically, I just wanted to let you know that the other series I have are written Q&As. They're not podcasts because I think I would die if I had six podcasts running <laughs> at the same time. Um, so in the written Q&A, Understood. Um, yes, uh, there's uh, I, I had uh, Andy McCune who we featured. And let me let me stop by saying the Gen ZEO is a very unique breed in Gen Z in and of itself. I mean, like I said, some of these young adults that we featured now are in their fourth, fifth, sixth business endeavor, and they're all extremely successful. So Andy McCune and his co-founder basically looked at Instagram and said, we don't like the way you tell our story. So we're going to create a technology, an app, and we're going to give consumers the power to tell their own stories the way that they want, agnostic of channel. They can be on any platform they want it to be. And they didn't know where that was going to go, but they just knew that marketing was broken. They didn't like the way stories, their own stories were, were being told. And what we're seeing is this surge of creation in the market that are coming from consumers. And this is the biggest shift we see in brands right now um, is turning the power to the consumer to tell their own story. So lo and behold, he launched this last year. It's already got 16 million users. Um, Tommy Hilfiger just brought him over to Paris for the Paris Fashion Show. And they opened up the app and gave all these storyboards to the consumers to tell their own story through the Tommy Hilfinger channel. And it, it was explosive. Um, and, and that's the key is we're looking at how to enable the consumers to be more powerful storytellers of the brand and giving them the right tools now. Uh, we are currently speaking with Nadine Dietz, and she's the editor of Adweek and host of CMO Moves. And you're listening to Measured Thoughts on Sirius XM 132 business radio powered by the Wharton School. You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Nadine, you've been doing this for uh, for a while now. Mm -hmm. As you said, you've had 70 CMOs that you've interviewed, and and you've been in this profession for a lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I shouldn't say a lot longer, a little bit Oh, I'm old. It's okay. (laughs) No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm sitting at a table with you, and I know I'm older, so... uh, (laughs) Anyhow, um, it, it turns out that we've both been doing this for a while. What, what sort of changes have you seen over the years um, and, and maybe even over the last decade um, that's going on with uh, with the heads of marketing? What, what do you see different than you did 10 years ago? So, you know, I, I hesitate because I don't want to re- repeat something we've already covered, but I think it is really important that you know, we just underscore it again, and then I'll give you some other examples. The concept of leadership, there are like 400,000 books on leadership in the marketplace. Um, and if there are 400,000 books, that, that signals a lot of things, right? means we haven't cracked it yet, and people still need help. Um, and there's a lot of different philosophies on leadership. But one of the most powerful quotes I've ever heard uh, came from actually Barry Posner and Jim Cowles of the Leadership Challenge. And they said, leadership Development is self-development. The instrument of leadership is the self, and mastery of the art of leadership comes from mastery of the self. And I think there's never been a time that I can remember where that philosophy has been embraced so strongly because leadership is a team sport, and it doesn't matter if you're if you're on the field by yourself, you're not playing with anybody, and you've got to practice it daily. And the only way you can drive growth, and I, I should have known with um, measured thoughts, we were going to talk about measures. I got a few measures for you. I'm going to throw at you in a minute. Uh, um, but uh, but you really can't do it in a vacuum. And the only way to really succeed, and, and I hear this from every single CMO I talk to, is through the power of the team. And so to be able to have success in the marketplace where consumers actually believe you in authentic, credible way around your brand, you have to have the team really be aligned to what is the purpose of the brand. And you have to create an environment where you're walking the talk every day. And is that more so today than it was 10 years ago? I think people were talking about it a lot. I think there were a lot of leaders who demonstrated and and modeled it early on. Um, But it's become so important. And if you look at 
you know, companies like Nike, where they, they just exude purpose uh, on the outside. People mistake the simplicity of their messaging as a simple ad. But that came from many, many years of internal work, understanding what the culture at Nike was all about so that they could resonate with their consumers and the consumers believe them. You see an erosion of consumer trust in the market now, unlike any other, and it continues to decline. Consumers just don't trust brands anymore. And they have to actually feel something. They have to be have an affinity to the brand. They have to believe in what the brand stands for. Um, I just interviewed the CMO of Danone, uh, Valerie Hernando. And uh, before she took on the global CMO role for Denon, which there was no such role for 10 years prior, there, there was no central marketing function, really? really. She was in corporate affairs, and yeah. it was all about one world, one health, and sustainable brands. And now her challenge is how does she take this mission-driven statement and actually make it live and breathe across the 2,000 marketers at Denon? So what I'm curious about as I hear that is I've seen some companies where the people are not that are managing the brand are not the target market for the brand. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, they they need to 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 embrace what the purpose of the of the brand is, but they don't own it mm-hmm. in the sense of I'm designing something for me. And in fact, I think that's dangerous when they do that, they need to really understand that customer and know what it is that, that that's imperative for them. And so as I heard you describe that, I was sort of thinking, no, I got to, I've got to be, I've got to be a cheerleader for this thing. I've got to be, I've got to be a believer. And, and, and to me, it seems like I've got to be a believer for that customer that I'm delivering something for that customer. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a, this is a bizarre story for me to go on right now, but I'm going to tell it because it's my program, which is I was asked years ago to come to um, Harley Davidson and to meet with senior management. And my biggest question is, what do I wear? You know, am I supposed to be wearing leathers, um, which, which I don't own, or was I supposed to show up in my denim, denim? which I have tons of, <laughs> or am I supposed to be wearing a suit? You know, and I didn't know if these guys were all going to roll up on their Harley uh, <laughs> for this particular meeting or not. And um, they all totally understood the culture of their customer, but that's not who they were. You know, they they were showing up in their Chevys um, and, you know, and they were wearing sports coat, sport coats and slacks and yet they totally understood the customer and were, and were there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's interesting and, and, and wanted just to make it really clear that while we own it, we, it's not necessarily for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's for that target market that we've got. And, um, and, and, and clearly we see it with a lot of fashion designers and everything. Let me, let me tell you the last question I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to end up having to take a break. But the, okay. the last question that I have, which is really, where do you see the field of marketing going? Uh, since since you've seen this over a number of years, uh, where's it going? What's what's happening to the field? So um, as we were talking about earlier, I think a real big trend to watch is the empowered consumer. Um, consumers really own brands now. I mean, they're going to make the decision on whether a brand lives or dies. And they need to feel part of the story. And, you know, I agree with what you said that you don't you don't always have to live and breathe by the product you, you quote, sell. But let's take Denon as an example, too, um, since we were talking about them. It isn't about whether or not you're eating their products every day. It's about the fact that the way they create their product and what they give back to the, the ecosystem and how they take care of the planet is going to create a better planet overall. And it's having that belief that you're doing something good for the world. So if that's what you believe in, that's a good place to work, right? Um, But when you think about the consumer, though, in that scenario, consumers are going to vote. They're going to vote. Do they actually buy into that philosophy? Do they believe that Denone is doing a good job? Are they really putting better products in their bodies? And are they helping to sustain the culture uh, or the world um, by reinvesting in the right type of agriculture. Uh, so that's one example. I mean, when it comes to the Harley Davidson or even 
you know, other fashion brands um, or any consumer product brands, consumers are already out there talking. They're using social media to share how they feel. They're making their own videos. We have new companies that we featured in Innovators recently, like Verve and Tongle, that are creating more tools. And then Andy McCune's company that creates more tools for consumers to have more and more tools at their disposal to tell their own stories about the brands. Our, our consumers and customers are owning our brand. I think that's a that's a good message, and I think it's a good place for us to take a break. So, Nadine, thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to see if I can encourage you to stay with us for the second part of the program. I know you've got some things you're dying to ask me. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, back at me, and we'll be glad to take calls from anyone else that would be interested in asking any questions or a reaction to um, the interview that we've just done. So we are going to need to take a break, and we'll be back for the last segment of the program, which will be open for any questions that are out there. If you want to join us, you can give us a call at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. This is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is David Reebstein. Welcome back. I'm Dave Reepstein. I'm here with Sunil Betty, and this is Measured Thoughts you're listening to on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. In this segment of the program, what it is that we're going to do is we're going to take any of your calls, questions that you might have about marketing, branding, metrics, and your reaction to the interview that we just had. And we'll be taking your calls at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email us at measuredthoughtsxm at gmail.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at bizradio132. And we have Nadine Dietz, who stays with us from the first uh, segment of the program, because she said she had a couple things that she wanted to torment me with. So we'll, we'll, hear, <laughs> we'll hear what her particular questions are as well. But first, I, I want to uh, turn to Sunil, because I always find his reactions... Uh, uh, you know, interesting. 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 So uh, any takeaway you have yeah, from the first I, part I, of the program? I, I thought it was great. I thought um, it was really nice. I think that we, you know, we obviously have interviewed a lot of people who who um, are in the marketing in the marketing sphere. And so, of course, is Nadine. But I think sometimes what we don't do is take stock of of the industry. And, and, and one way to do that is to really kind of see commonalities uh, between – people that have been very, very successful in the industry. And I think Nadine's really doing that. Uh, And I think these kinds of commonalities that she's brought, particularly this internal marketing uh, and really getting your mission, uh, 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 you know, consistently understood and consistently uh, bought into inside your company, I think is really cool. And I think it's important to kind of be doing this kind of work. So I I agree. And so I think Nadine, I think you've been doing a great job. And, and, and by the way, trying to synthesize across them, I asked you that question about it is something I don't think I could have answered. So I, I appreciate that you could. What, um, what I, I want to bounce off of something you just said, Sunil, sure. which is how we could learn from all the people that have been very successful. I think there's a lot of learning from those who haven't been so oh, successful. Oh, absolutely. Well. Yeah, no, for sure. They're less likely to be interviewed. But I think there are some lessons um, that, that, um, that would be nice for us to be uh, able to distill as well mm-hmm. as absolutely. to why, why a product didn't succeed or why even a, a senior marketer. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't succeed. So um, I, I think those are, are definitely some components mm-hmm. for us that, mm-hmm. that we've got. And, and Dave, to that point, actually, everyone I've interviewed claims failure is their biggest success point, and they encourage their teams to fail and then learn from those failures. Boy, if you if you can put that within an organization and have it that we, we've got people that are um, willing to fail, means they're willing to stretch mm-hmm. you know, outside of their comfort zone and discover some things that might work a little bit better. And so I, I think being willing to fail it, it is actually not something I see very often. Uh, but I, I, I think it's great when you have an organization that can do that. So I, I think that's important. Um, Nadine, did you have a, a question that you wanted to, uh, to ask me? 
Oh my God. I have a lot of questions. I have to have pull you on CMO moves to get all my questions in. Okay. But you, you, we're not going to have time for that. So, so, so give me your best, give me your best shot here. Well, um, you clearly have, are also very successful and have done so much for the marketing community. I wanted you to share a little bit about this facility. You just walked me around here today. I'm, I'm amazed at what you're going to take on for the next week. Um, but in general, what is your passion? So, so first of all, I've been a professor for a long time, and I love being a professor. I love being a professor in part because I love learning. And I find every time I teach, I, I walk away learning uh, something and something new. And what's weird is sometimes I'll be teaching some concept or doing a case, and I'll hear something different that I had never heard before, and I'll like, wow, I'd never thought about that. And so to me, that is really wonderful. But one of the other things I'm really passionate about is so I teach and I I love sort of basically taking people that don't know that much about marketing and opening their eyes to uh, what marketing is all about. Totally passionate about that. But also taking people that really know a lot of marketing and, and push them to that next level. So you know, I walked you around this facility. I'm just getting ready to teach, you know, 225 or, or more executive MBAs that come every other weekend to take classes uh, to, towards their MBA. All of them are out there working in industry today. All of them think they know something about marketing. Until they meet you. Until they meet me. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and so there's a little bit of, of masochism in me, but I, I sort of like um, – you know, trying to open people's eyes to things beyond what it is that they've been doing, but also opening my eyes and taking some of that in. And that happens in my class. It happens through the research that I do. And the, some of the research that I've been doing with Sunil has, has been very illuminating for me. And then I, I work with a number of companies and I find the challenges in that and, and lessons in that for me as well. So that's that's been the real joy. It's It's been a real joy for uh we're a couple of years here yeah, <laughs> or, or, or more. So that's really fun. So, well, it's impressive. This, this facility here that you showed me around and, and just how intense the program is going to be for this next week. I mean, and you're hosting the whole thing by pretty much I, I, by I, yourself. I, I am the sole instructor. I've got a lot of assistants here. So Sunil's here with me. I've got, um, professor, I, Sunil. Uh, <laughs> professor Sunil, I've got five TAs that are going to go around and work with the students while I'm working and teaching. Mm-hmm. And I've got a team of, of it people, but Nadine was just talking about the facility that we're in, which is out here at Wharton West in the Embarcadero. And my office has these beautiful windows that are out looking at the Bay Bridge. And it helps that it's clear and sunny and beautiful outside. And so um, <laughs> it, it, it's really, really nice. But the joy is inside. Yes. I, and I, that's a theme. The, yeah, the, yeah, it, it, exactly. The, it's the internal side and seeing, you know, all all these people that come. So here on the West Coast, we've got people that come and they come down here from Microsoft and, and come from, you know, Nike that you mentioned that are there or come from Amazon. We've got people that are here from Apple and Google. Uh, which is really, really nice, uh, stretching all the way down. But they they come from even broader than that. I think I mentioned to you I've had some students that commute every other weekend from China. Um, we've got some student. I had a student last year. Uh, was it last year, Sunil, that came from Russia? Yeah, last year yeah, from Russia. Yeah. had one that, that was flying from Russia. Uh, but most of them come from generally the western half of the United States. But I'm also bringing all of our executive MBAs from the East Coast, so they're coming from Boston down to Florida, a few coming from Latin America, a few coming from Europe. But I've got them cloistered here, and we're going to run from early in the morning till late at night. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm an ogre with them and, and, and push them hard. But it, it really is uh, at the end of the week, they're really happy. And it could be just because it's the end of the week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so that's part of what it is that ends up happening. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Yeah. Um, actually, there's there's another thing that happened this week that I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. It'd be a shame for us not to talk about it, which is, you know, I've been very involved with Apple and Samsung. I was an expert witness in the Apple yeah. Samsung case. And um, 
and it's been a it's been a constant battle between Apple and Samsung, and Samsung just introduced a new foldable phone. Right. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, the flip phone we used to have and we got rid of it, but right. now they've brought back this foldable fl- uh, phone, and it was supposed to be their flagship product, and it's malfunctioning. It's, they're, they're, it's breaking. It's it's breaking. There's there's yeah. some malfunction that's going on, and it's look, looking like whoops, put the brakes on that. And it sort of is interesting. I, I, I don't know what lesson you take from that. Uh, e- either one of you two, what lesson it is that you take from that. I'll, but I'll go first and okay. tell you what I, <laughs> what I take from it is sometimes when you're in this competitive battle, you're in a rush. I want to get this product yeah. out. I really need to get ahead. I'm, you know, Apple's announcing whatever it is they're doing next, and we need to be out there in the forefront. And sometimes you get a little bit too far ahead of yourself. Mm-hmm. And you and in in a rush to get to market, you find that sometimes you haven't polished things quite enough, and um, and I don't I I will confess I don't know the specifics of uh, of this particular case as to whether that was the case, but there were have been a number of complaints about the product, and I think they're having to. I don't know. Have they totally withdrawn it? I don't think they've totally withdrawn it, but I think they've delayed a lot of or all of the uh, 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 all of the supply that's going out. Yeah. Do you know anything about the story? Not very much. No. Um, so it's interesting. It reminds me of the podcast I did with Stuart Redson, who was at Motorola when they launched the Razor, mm. and that was the first mobile phone that ever came out with an actual name. It didn't have right. a number. That was groundbreaking when it came out. Right? Yeah. It was exactly. Thin. It was, you know, <laughs> Really cool. I had one. I remember having one. I remember having one too. And the concept behind it is is actually the flip phone. I mean, it's a great idea because there are a lot of issues when the front of your phone is is facing up, right? And and so um, I just have this image of Stuart Redson as he was crawling across the conference room table with all the model designs until he found the one singular one that they were going to launch with. But it was still an 18-month launch plan. So I wonder how long they plan the launch. You know, these launch plans are getting shorter and yeah, shorter they and have shorter. To. Yeah. And there's some risk associated with that. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if whoever it is that was behind the, the foldable phone gets promoted because, oh, good, yeah, you, you right. just did that, or, or if there's you know, some lashes that happen to go on with that. So that happens to be an interesting one. I think it's also interesting to think about what, it's, what that's going to do towards Samsung brand. You know, I think Samsung has gone through, I think, the, the phones that were exploding at one point mm-hmm. uh, right, on, right. on planes, right? But it seemed like they bounced back from that. Question it, you know, I curious to see whether you know what you guys think of whether this is something that I mean, this is such such a a, a, um, a groundbreaking form of technology. Is it something that Samsung can then either fix or kind of uh, bounce back from? You know, this kind of not a recall, but this kind of delay. Uh, do you have a reaction to that, Nadine? Well, I do believe, and I can't be, you know, I'll ask not to be quoted on this because I don't have the actual concrete numbers in front of me, sure. measured results here or measured thoughts. Um, but uh, I do believe Samsung has a very high uh, net promoter score. And so when you're thinking about mm-hmm. how we measure the perception of ba- brands in the marketplace, I, I do think they're doing really well there with consumers. They resonate. They resonate um, across a lot of different issues in a lot of different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they have, a, they've earned a certain level of forgiveness. Um, how much forgiveness is available? I don't know. Right. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, now I will point out, by the way, this was a $2,000 phone. It was, it was yeah, off the sure, charts. Yeah. This is, this is the, you know, the phone, it's the best and it's out there at, I think it's actual price was 1980 Of course. But it was the phone. It's this unique foldable screen. So it's not a cover comes over it, but it has a foldable, sc- uh, foldable screen. And what it is they've done is they've announced they're postponing the release yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and and that's what it is that they're doing. Um, you're listening to Measured Thoughts on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are currently um, talking with Nadine uh, Dietz, who has stayed with us in this part of the program. She was with us in the first part. She's the editor of Adweek and the host of CMO Moves. And you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, you know, as, as we think about... Um, whether or not it's going to damage the brand. Mm-hmm. Sunil's question that's out there. I think there's enough of Samsung sort of 
legacy and, and, and other experiences that will sort of override sure. it. But when you ask that question, it reminded me of another recall that happened this week. So this week, there's the Fisher Price um, rock and play oh, right, product right. Yeah. Uh, that was out there on the market. And um, they recalled the product. Those, it, it turns out if the kid would roll over mm. in it, the 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 device would roll over as well. Oh. And so they've had to, oops, sorry about that. Now, the name of the game for Fisher-Price is consumer safety. Yes, you know, absolutely. You, you don't want to be messing with safety. No. So the, the not quite, when it comes to kids. Not when, sure. it, not when yeah. it comes to kids. Um, and they they ended up recalling about 5 million of these. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, that's a lot. Um, and there have been some babies that have died mm. in this. So it's a major, major issue right. uh, for them. And so one of the questions is, um, is this something that's going to hurt the Fisher-Price brand? Well, I think, I think first of all, I think it, it certainly will to some degree. I mean, uh, um, you know, I think when you have children getting injured, anytime there's, a, um, anytime there's an injury for children, I think people kind of step back and kind of criticize, criticize the brand. But I think that what Fisher Price needs to think about is the right response. I think the one of the right responses is recall as quickly as possible. But how do you do? You apologize? Do you say, "Hey, it was our fault," or "This was the defect"? I mean, how do you go about you know kind of managing this brand crisis? I think is going to be a really interesting question. Yeah, we're going to see how Fisher Price and, and, responds. And so, uh, by the way, Nadine uh, Sunil is a got his PhD in marketing and in business ethics. So this is very, very right. relevant sure. uh, yeah, for for Sunil. Um, so you think how they handled it was right? Well, the CEO did not announce the recall. It turns out the the brand manager oh. uh, ended up doing it. And some say, well, uh, you know, Fisher Price, which happens to be owned by Mattel. Mm. The CEO of, uh, of Mattel should be coming forward yeah. and saying, Maybe. we've got a major problem. We're going to be proactive in taking this. Um, and and actually, the initial reaction, I think, had something to do with, well, you read the fine print. Yep. See, that's yeah. that's that's the trouble. Right? Yeah. Rather than Mia Copa and we're, you know, right. we're getting this thing out of the market right now. So um, it, it is a it, it's an interesting issue as to what happens to the brand. And there are mis- there are problems that happen. I don't mean to make light of it, of it at all. We've mm-hmm. got the Samsung case where a, a product failure has happened. We now have a Fisher Price yep. case mm-hmm. where a product failure happens. And the question is, you know, what do you do and how do you manage that? And actually, Nadine, to part of what you said earlier, mm-hmm. these are the times that really call upon leadership. Yes. And um, and I think one example of leadership that um, that we have talked about before is when there was a problem in a Starbucks coffee shop where they had, you know, asked a, a patron to leave um, and, and not use the restroom, not use the not restroom, not, right, u- yeah, not yeah. use the restroom because he wasn't buying coffee and it led to, oh, is this racial discrimination mm-hmm. everything? It wasn't, no, it was or it wasn't or the, he had done the right thing. It was, we need to take some immediate action. And, and that's yeah. what it is that we're going to do. So um, I, I think it does call for leadership and part of what it is that it's all, uh, it's all about. So interesting challenges, lots of good marketing stuff going on this week. And it's another, you know, marketing moment that, w- that we have. Anyhow, I would certainly like to thank uh, Nadine for joining us today. would like to thank our program director, Patty Hall, our producer, uh, Matthew Datz, and our, our sound engineers, uh, Jeff Simmons, who has been our sound engineer in uh, in Philadelphia, and then we also have had Charlene here helping us here. I'm Dave Reepstein, and you've been listening to Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 